0: Good morning, Rio. Good morning. All right, nice. All right, so as you came in, you should have received your play sheet. And a couple of things I wanna go through quickly on here. Our alpha sessions are going to begin again in September. This is a way to introduce people to conversations about the Christian faith and, and an open environment that's non-judgmental. We also have our starting point. Um, and our next meet and greet is gonna be July 28th in the Ingram Cafe upstairs behind me. And then on third, the spiritual formation, we have two really exciting announcements. First, if you're like me and you wish that I didn't get up here (laughs) and that we could just keep listening and worshiping our God, being led by Ryan and and the worship team, then we have a real treat for you. This Wednesday, uh, we have our spiritual formation night that goes from six thirty to eight o'clock, and this Wednesday it's going to be set aside for a worship night. Which means we're going to come together, we're going to pray, we're going to worship God. We're just going to, to quiet ourselves, our hearts, and sing praises to God. And so I'd love to see Wednesday night just packed out with us coming to, to honor and offer up our praises to our Lord. And the other announcement, which is exciting, at least to me, is the podcast podcast. Out of Water. Several months ago, Tom asked that we would produce a podcast. And so Drew Brown and myself and Mark Lottenschlager produced a podcast called Out of Water. And we've been talking about all sorts of issues. So anxiety, work, rest. We just recorded loneliness. And then a number of teachings beside that. This is a great way for you throughout your week while you're mowing the lawn, while you're driving to work, just reinforcing into your heart the truth of God's word. And so you can see it's available on Apple Podcasts. So you see the little symbol there. If you go in there and you search out of water, we'd love it if you would subscribe to that podcast or through Spotify or through Google Play Music. You go in, you search out of water, subscribe and give us a good rating so that I will feel better about my existence. (laughs) Kind of. But what that also does is when you subscribe is it gives priority and ranking so that when people come into a podcast, it'll say, Hey, check this out. It's an easy and painless way to help in evangelism and discipleship of people who are even beyond our church walls. And so I'd really encourage you even now, I don't even mind if you do this right now to take out your phone and subscribe before you forget, or make a note to yourself to do that uh, when you get home. So today... We're in this sermon series called The Voice of Reason. We're looking at Proverbs. And the idea is we're looking at biblical wisdom versus the world's wisdom. And measuring against each other, which one's better? Now, today we're talking about parenting. And I think the fastest way to get a room full of people angry with you is to start giving them advice on how they should parent. And right now... I'm pretty sure there's some kind of supernatural thing going on right now where each of my children feel this sense. Dad's going to talk to other people about parenting after the service. I'm sure Caleb's looking at Jacob saying, okay, you, we're going to run around and we're going to be insane after the service. Leah, you go back and spill the bagels onto the floor. Nathan, you fall backwards and throw a tantrum on the floor. Like that's just the way it goes that when you feel like, Hey, I think I'm, I think I'm an okay parent no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not. I remember when we had Caleb, when he was young, he was just the easiest kid in the world, the easiest kid in the world. And Laura and I were like, we got this, we're good parents. And then we had Jacob and now they've switched. They've gone all over the place. They, their personalities are constantly changing. Parenting is hard business. It wrecks our hearts. It tugs at everything in there. We're constantly accusing ourselves and saying, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. I'm setting my kid up for failure. Oh, I wish I could go back in time and change this or that. And if there's anything in life, ooh, that just rips our guts out. I remember five years ago being in a men's breakfast, and we had probably 35 or 40 guys in there. And I asked the question, how many of you feel like failures as dads? Every single hand went up. This is hard stuff. And it's far more complex than a 30-minute sermon can solve. And so I just want to walk through four things that, that we are seeing right now in our world that desperately we need to return to some biblical ideas of how to raise our kids. And please hear this message with a lot of grace for yourself. Don't condemn yourself with this. If you're not a parent yet, absorb it. If you've already been a parent, you know, the Lord loves your children more than you do. And he is not done with them yet. Trust him. So I, I think it goes without saying that the most important thing that you can do for your children is to teach them to love the Lord. See, we've forgotten in this generation that it's not just, oh, yeah, compartmentalize this thing on Sunday. And I would love for my kids to have a religious influence. That would be nice if they would go to church. Maybe they'll be nice people. That's how our culture has reduced the entirety of how we engage in faith. But the reality is, and I have this conversation with new parents that come into Bethany Christian School, every single family that comes in. This is the conversation We are going to teach your children the gospel. We're not going to be judgmental. We're not going to beat them over the head. We're not going to make it something that's, you know, oppressive and overbearing. But here's why I want your child to understand the gospel deep in their bones. Because as they grow up, as they go out into the world, there are going to be a million things that they can't control. They, they can't control how long you're around, whether you get sick, what comes their way. But here's what I want them to know. That no matter what comes their way, no matter what circumstance, no matter how they perform, that the God of the universe who knows everything about them, their worst things, the God of the universe looks at them and loves them to pieces. And they can find security in that. I want your kids to have the confidence to go through life not being rocked and shaken by every change and circumstance that's beyond their control to feel like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I haven't produced. I I want them to get the gospel that they are valuable and loved no matter what might come their way. The gospel calls them to a greater path of beauty in this world without all the added weight and anxiety and fear of failure and everything else that comes with it. I want them to know God, to love God deep in their bones, to find intimacy with him, for him to be their best friend, their savior, somebody that they can look to and know they are never going to leave me or forsake me. God is mine and I am his I want everyone to walk around in this world with that confidence because without it, this world is abusive. Amen? And so with that, with that as the number one that children need from you, their parents, I want to dive into four things that specifically our generations, my generation and the generations after me have gotten really wrong. Parenting rule number one, and this is new by the way. These were new challenges. We didn't have all the smartphones and internet and everything else. we're, We're learning this as we go. But rule number one, loneliness plagues kids today. So allow for play and discovery, encourage opportunities to forge friendships and limit technology. So you would think That because we're interconnected, that we're, you know, our devices, we can talk to anyone on the face of the planet, and our kids are busier than ever, they're more engaged with stuff all over the place, and they're constantly communicating, right? They are lonelier than ever. Sociologists, people who study these trends are looking at this saying, what is going on? Why in the world are these younger generations beginning to despair? Why are they feeling so alone? And I think part of it is when everyone has access to you, our bandwidth in life, we're so busy, we're running around, and when your phone rings and you look at it, be honest, how many of you say, I'm sending them to voicemail? They'll text me. I'm too stretched thin. I can't have all people having access to me. And so I keep everybody at arm's length and I don't want to invest in anybody because I'm already too stretched thin. And so we have tons of interpersonal relationships, but all of those relationships are this deep. And we don't have those people that have deep, meaningful interactions with us, who know what we're walking through, who know what we're struggling with, who come and give us a hug and lift us up when we're struggling. We don't have that in the same way that they used to. The Proverbs say this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, a man with many Facebook friends. A man with a lot of followers on Instagram, a man who's got tons and tons and tons of people who know him a millimeter deep may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we need to encourage our kids to have those kinds of deep relationships where they suffer with other kids, where they're walking with people in the same stage of life. There was a study that was done by Cigna, who's a health insurance provider, and they wanted to know Why in the world is is this loneliness epidemic happening and what are its impacts? And they found that loneliness has the same impact on your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. They found that it's more impactful to your health than obesity. And one of the other stunning things that they found is for all of history, we tend to think that the, the loneliest generations are those that are the older ones. Their empty nest, maybe... Maybe their loved one has gone home to be with the Lord and what they found stunned them in the last five generations going from the baby boomers or I'm sorry, the greatest generation, the baby boomers, Gen X, which is me, the millennials and Gen Z. Every generation is getting increasingly lonely and not by a little bit. If you want to find the loneliest people in society, they are not found among our elderly. They're found in our schools. Our kids need opportunities to experience real life together. There's a sociologist, a psychologist, who's from the San Diego State University, and she wrote this article that got a lot of traction, and it was, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And what she did is she looked at all these studies that since 2007, when the smartphone was released, she said, what happened... To relationships. And this is what she found. The numbers of kids who hang out with friends and routine intervals fell off a cliff. Students are no longer in any rush to drive. They don't even bother getting their driver's license anymore. That's just bizarre to me. When I was 16, it was like counting the days and hoping that I didn't do something stupid that would make my dad say, nope. Like I I was desperate to get a driver's license, but they don't even want to drive anymore, many of them. They're less likely to date. Now, as a dad of a five year old daughter, that's good news. (laughs) But the bad news is is it's not because they're virtuous and they're, oh, I'm just going to wait. It's because they've lost the ability of knowing how to relate to other people. And when they are asked, do you feel lonely? Since 2007, that number, which had been declining, went through the stratosphere. You know what the antidote to this is? And this is something that's really exciting, but it's something that we've got to get engaged with. The antidote to all this stuff, the antidote to the, all of it, when they do studies, you know where they find mental health comes from? It's like study after study after study after study. I might be oversimplifying it, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. When children are raised up in a community of faith, like you can't study and say, how sincere is your faith? You don't know. It's inside them. But what they can see is how often are you plugged into a community of faith? When they find students who participate in religious activities, they're more likely, this is from a study that was published in the USA Today, they're more likely to have better emotional and mental health than students with no religious involvement. The University of North Carolina and Harvard did studies on this, and this is quotes from their, their research. More religious students are less likely to drink, struggle with addictions, face depressions, engage in violence, receive traffic tickets, be combative with their parents. There you go. There's reason enough. <laughs> Skip school, steal, trespass, suffer in-school disciplinary actions, and they are more likely to have a positive outlook on life, receive higher grades, exercise. Experience happier home lives. Participate in extracurricular activities. Graduate high school and find stable relationships with their peers. That, in opposition to all the trends that we see where this generations are falling apart, here you find God's wisdom, God's design, and when that's employed, kids are healthy when they find community, when they lean on grace, much healthier. Time magazine put this quote out there. Study after study after study has found that religious people tend to be less depressed and less anxious than non-believers, better able to handle the vicissitudes of life than non-believers. Harvard People who attended weekly religious services or practiced daily prayer or meditation in their youth reported greater life satisfaction and positivity in their 20s and were less likely to subsequently have depressive symptoms. Parents, your children need this. It's not ornaments to decorate their life with on a Sunday. This needs to be the core of who they are. If you want them to be healthy and happy and to have positive outlook and to avoid pitfalls, here's something that all the studies even are saying is a good shot for you to do. And this is a serious problem. Since 2007, the teen suicide rate among girls has more than doubled now. In a decade. And this is not all due to technology, which brings me to point number two. Parents, allow your children to fail and use these moments to teach resiliency. You see, learning how to fail, learning resiliency, learning perseverance is one of the most important life skills you can give to your children, it's critical to life. In the last 40 years, our society has been inundated by what was called the self-esteem movement. It's where, you know, every child gets a trophy. I love this cartoon where it's like the little girl wakes up and is coming down the stairs and it's like, oh yay, you woke up. Here's a trophy and balloons. And, and we think, We think that we are doing our kids a service by heaping undeserved praise on them, by telling them that they're the prettiest and the smartest and the best. And it's having the opposite effect of what we intend. You know, the University of Pennsylvania did a study to determine the greatest indicator of success. It's fascinating. So they followed cadets at the Virginia Military Institute. They followed kids that were in the spelling bee. They followed salespeople in a major corporation. And they followed multiple types of people. And they said, okay, what is the greatest indicator of success? It was not IQ. It was not GPA. It wasn't their test scores. It wasn't their wealth. It wasn't their attractiveness. It was resiliency. What the study called grit Perseverance, the ability to fail, pick yourself up and go back at it, not being crushed by the failure. The Proverbs, so right now, New York Times Magazine posted this not long ago, more American teenagers than ever are suffering from severe anxiety. And you think, well, that shouldn't be. We've been praising them to the rooftops. Why are they so anxious? Well, here's the deal. If before I got up here, Ryan had said, Oh, you're in for a treat. We have the most amazing preacher of all time who's unbelievably handsome beyond rival, who's gonna come up and deliver a message that will blow your socks off. I'm in my seat going, dude, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> There's not a chance that I'm gonna be able to live up to all the praise that's heaped on top of me. And now I have no freedom to stink. That's what we're doing to our kids. You're the best. You're the brightest. You're the smartest. And they're walking around under the weight of all those accolades that they haven't deserved yet. And you know what all the research is showing? That praise, undeserved praise, makes them risk averse. Columbia University did a study and they found that if a kid who gets excessive praise will not try, why would they? They're already number one. Why risk the title? The Proverbs say the crucible is for silver. The furnace is for gold. But a man is tested by his praise. You know what that means? Like you put gold in the fires and it's going to burn it up. It's going to put it through this unbelievable harsh test. And it's going to make it pure on the other side. The same with silver. But for human beings, we're tested by our praise. If I get up here, if Ryan had said, Sam is leading a fitness seminar this week and he's amazingly in shape. When I get up here, before I was not thinking about my appearance. Now I'm terrified of it. A man is tested by his praise. You want to crush someone, praise them. And force them to live up to it. And so you're not helping your kids when you minimize the obstacles in their path. But this cartoon, is, it sums up parenting pretty well here lately. Oh, I've got to remove that. I don't want them to stumble. I don't want them to stumble. I've got to save them from everything. And here's another study for you. In 2013, published in the Journal of Child and Family Studies, they found that college students whose parents were over-involved, like hyper-involved in all aspects of their life, had significantly higher levels of depression- And less satisfaction with life. Today we have what's called concierge parenting, where you give them everything they need before they even know that they need it. It used to be, when I was growing up, you heard the term helicopter parents, where it's like, I'm hovering, if they fall, I'm going to be right there to scoop them up, I'm not going to let them suffer for long, I'm going to watch everything they do, and now it's called snowplow parenting. You're going before them to prevent them from ever having any kind of an obstacle, ever. And you're stealing from them while they're young the chance to learn resiliency, to learn grace and mercy and second chances. And they're being told that they're the greatest. And so the first time they realize they're not is when they're in college away from you. Let them fail with you. Let them learn how to be resilient with you. Let let you be the one there to pick them up. There's another study, and I, I love studies if you can't tell. But this is fascinating to me. They did a study with art students that that were doing molding and pottery and everything else. And so they divided the, the group into two classes. The one class came in and the professor said, Okay, at the end of the nine weeks, you're going to be graded on one piece of pottery... So make it really awesome. And you're going to spend the nine weeks reading about it, watching YouTube videos about it. You're going to to look at it. You're going to find the properties of clay and everything else. At the end of the nine weeks, you're going to be graded entirely on the quality of that one piece of work. Second class comes in and he says, quality doesn't matter. You're going to be graded on the weight of all the pottery that you produce. So produce a ton of it. Don't worry about the quality. At the end of the nine weeks, you had one group that spent all sorts of care getting this one thing absolutely perfect. Their one chance. Then you had this group over here that had a ton of pottery. Which, which group do you think produced the better pottery? The one that didn't care about the quality. It was kind of stunned everybody, and here's why. Do you know what happened with all these people as they were just producing tons and tons and tons and tons and tons, and tons of pottery? They learned a whole bunch of ways in which you do not make pottery. Failure made them awesome artists. That verse that we find in the Bible, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. That verse is not purely meant spiritually as in train up, train them up to follow Jesus. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. That's part of it. But this verse literally is saying, train up a child in the way he's made. And when he's old, he won't depart from him. Train him up to find what they're good at. Train him up to find what they're passionate about. Help them explore who they are and to figure out who they are through all the failures and everything else that comes with it. And when they're old, they'll have found their passion, what they're good at, and they will not depart from it. They'll find the reason why they're made and they won't depart from it. The most famous parable in the scriptures is the parable of the prodigal son. That parable starts this way. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, I don't want to wait until you're dead. I wish you were dead now, but you're not. So just give me the money. So he divided his property between them, and not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And I don't know if you've ever done this. This parable is not about parenting, by the way. It's given to the Pharisees. It's about the older brother, if you know the story of the parable. But in this is something really interesting. Here you have a father, and who is the father in the parable? God. And you have a younger son who's wayward and a mess. And he comes to the father and says, I want you dead. I don't want to be under your authority anymore. I just want your blessings. Give them to me. Now, if that happens in the Cast Smith home, it's a very short conversation. Dad, I want your money. Go to your room. Here, the father gives it no, 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 no. That's bad parenting. You can't do that. You can't, you can't let them run off. you? He'll fail. So what happens here? The father gives a third of the inheritance to this kid who has no business having it. Who's wicked to the core, who doesn't care about anybody, but himself. And the father goes up on the rooftop for days and he looks down the street just agonizing, crying, waiting, longing for the day that his son might come home. He has the wisdom to know that the only chance this son has to be redeemed is to learn on his own, to fail and to experience failure. And so he sits on the roof looking and looking and waiting and waiting and sure enough, this son goes off and squanders it all in wild living. And eventually he finds himself taking care of pigs, which that's not a pleasant thing for a Jewish person. And he's a mess and he's longing to eat what the pigs have. And one day it says he came to his senses and said, my goodness, my father treats the servants better than what I'm getting here. So I'll go home. I'll I'll repent. I'm going to tell him, dad, I've I've sinned against you. and, And God, please take me back as a servant. I don't deserve to be a son. And as he's thinking this, the dad's up on the rooftop. Longing, waiting, hoping. Why did the dad allow this? He wanted his child to fail. Because he knew that through that failure... He could teach them the beauty of home. He could show them the richness of his love and provision. And so when that son comes home, hat in hand, terribly embarrassed, the father races out to him, which would have been an embarrassment in the ancient world, hugs him, restores him, gives him the signet ring with the full authority of the house, restores his inheritance, gives him the robe of the family, gives him the best of everything is restored to him. That would not have happened if the father had said, I can't let him fail. Now, you don't do that with a five-year-old. But there are ways to let a five-year-old learn from their mistakes. Or a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old. Rule number three, discipline your children. Help them to grow to be the men and women that they're designed to be. You know, I have conversations with students all the time in my office when I have to give a a consequence for their behavior. And this is what the conversation goes like because they see, oh, there's going to be a consequence. That must mean you don't love me. Like that's the way they interpret it. But this is the way the scriptures teach it. I love you too much to allow you to settle in a pattern that's going to destroy you. And so, I want to give you consequences that are going to steer you back into the way that I know God has made you. That's hard as a parent. But now, this generation, we don't discipline our kids. We rage against anyone else who might say that our kids are in the wrong. I love this cartoon in 1960 when the kid comes home with a bad report card. These grades are terrible. 2010, they're screaming at the teacher. These grades are terrible. And what is it doing for that little kid's heart? It's not good. The Proverbs say, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord, hear this, disciplines those he loves as the father, the son he delights in. I remember when I was 11 years old, I was on a baseball team, all-star team for the summer and I was, a, I was just a mess of a kid. But anyway, during that, I had a coach named Sid Joyner, who was a mountain of a man. And when he spoke, he spoke like this. And he was intimidating. But anyway, I was, I was a second baseman, but I didn't start in the all-star team. And I was, I was angry about it. I should start. I should start. I'm the best. And any time that the person who was starting at second base made an error, see... When he struck out, see, I should be starting. And I remember one day there was an infield grounder that he missed and I grabbed a helmet off the rack and I threw it against the fence. And I said, great call, coach. And he came over to me (laughs) and grabbed me by my uniform, lifted me up, took me over to the gate, shoved me out and said, you're off the team. And I thought, oh, he laid his hands on me, dad, dad. And I walked over to my dad and I said, the coach just threw me off the team. He said, why do you do that? I don't know. My dad got up. I watched him go over to the gate and I see him talking to the coach. At first, he's ready to go. Then he melts down. Then I can tell he's bothered. (laughs) Then he walks over to me and says, Sam, get in the car. And I was like, ooh, this has not gone the way I wanted it to. (laughs) And I went home and my dad laid into me with love. And he said, tomorrow morning, Saturday, tomorrow morning, I'm going to take you to the field. You're going to apologize to your teammates. You're going to apologize to your coach. You're going to serve him. You're going to shag balls. You don't have a prayer of ever starting. I won't allow it, but you're going to serve him and you're going to do everything he says. You understand me? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. And I went there the next day and I stood in front of Sid Joyner and I was embarrassed to say in front of all my friends, I'm sorry for doing this and apologize to him and I served him. And in doing so, I learned how much that man loved me. Now, I remember there being a lightning storm and we were running in because it's not good to do batting practice with a lightning storm. So we're running in to get out of the storm. And right at that moment, a crack happened and it was loud. It was like instantaneous flash sound all together. It was close. And this guy wrapped me up, which is not what you want to do in a lightning strike. But anyway, he wrapped me up and fell onto the ground with me. And in that moment, I knew his instinct is I would lay down my life for you, Sam. That taught me things about humility and respect and obedience as an 11-year-old boy that if I didn't learn then, my dad loved me enough to do the hard thing. Discipline your son while there is still hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. Don't let him veer off and wander his own way. Discipline him. And finally, number four, Sincerely model your faith to your family. Exhibit humility, love, grace, mercy in your home. Repent to your family. This is hard. This is where most of us begin to feel like failures. The Proverbs say, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. The righteous who walks in integrity, blessed are their children after him after them. Let me explain what is integrity. It's, it's the same root from where we get the word integer in math. It means it's a whole, there's no fraction to it. Are there fractions in your life? Are there fractions in your life? Integrity, it says, is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Here's a terrifying statement from a guy who wrote the book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. He says, don't worry that your children never listen to you. Worry that they are always watching you. Do your children, do they see someone who loves Jesus at home? Or do they see someone who's religious on Sundays? Do they see someone whose faith impacts all of their life? Do they see someone who prays, who loves the scriptures, who talks about their savior, who loves the gospel? Do they, do they find a parent who's pointing them to Jesus and his grace and his love and his mercy? Do they believe that you've surrendered your life to him? Do they see you humbly asking for forgiveness and extending grace and mercy? Do they see that even in spite of the fact that your failure to do these things well, and we all fail to do these things well, that you really want to follow Jesus? Do they see the desire? You see, it's easy for us to come to church and put on the mask and lie to each other about how we've got it together and then go living the rest of our lives. But here's the deal, you can conceal that from us. I can conceal that from you. I can't conceal it from my kids. They see it. They know it. And if they see that this faith that I talk about so often really doesn't mean anything to me, it's not gonna mean much to them. They, but if we live as though Jesus is our great treasure, and we want him to be their great treasure, then they'll live a life that knows the kind of love of the prodigal son Winston sent this image to me from his phone, and I love this. The difference between religious people and gospel people. Religious people look at their failures, right, and they say, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. Gospel people say, I messed up. I need to call my dad. That same, so if you're in here this morning and you just heard all this stuff about parenting and you've got a million thoughts of how you're a failure and how you wish you could have a mulligan, and this was not an easy one for me to prepare, I was a disgrace of a dad yesterday. but I have that same right that I desperately want my kid to know that when he messes up, he can come to me and be restored and hugged and embraced like the prodigal on his way home, knowing the dad's going to come out and meet him on the road and embrace him and restore him and give him the best. If you're in here and you feel like, oh, what have I done? Or my kids have already gone. I've lost the chance. If you feel that way, your father wants you to run home to him. Run home. Give them your failures. Give them to the cross. Trust him with them. And as I said before, here's the truth. Your Father in heaven loves your children more than you do. And you can trust them with him. Your Father in heaven stands ready to hear your cry, to race out, to embrace you, to forgive you, to restore you, and to remind you that your kids are his and you can trust him with them. Let's pray. Father, for this parenting thing, it is so hard. And so often I feel like I'm squandering this blessing, like I'm, like I'm not meeting the mark and I see things that make me feel like it's my fault and, Lord, I just pray that your grace would come over all of us, all of us parents, those that are going to be parents, those that have been parents, and that you would remind us of your rich, rich mercy and grace, that you would give us the hope of knowing that our kids are in your hands, not ours. Father, I thank you for this privilege to parent, and Lord, I pray that you would do amazing things in the lives of our children in the home, and those who have already gone out, and that you would rescue this nation and all this this emergence of depression and anxiety and loneliness, Lord, that you would make us a community that lifts up and loves well, that finds meaningful relationships with one another, that learns resiliency and walks with confidence and grace when we fail, that that doesn't define us, and Lord, let us love well enough to discipline, (laughs) to point our kids to you, and to do it in a way that they believe because we walk with integrity. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.